Well, welcome once more to City Church. You glad to be here this morning? You doing all right? Good, good. My name is Mike, and I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad to be with you this morning. Um, Our lead pastor, Justin, spent the week on a writing retreat, cranking out a book, so we're really excited about that. You'll hear more about that in the future, but because of that, I have the great honor of being with you this morning. And we're speaking to all of our locations this morning, so let's say hello to Bridgeport, Middletown, Hartford, North Campus here in New Haven. Can we say hello? Say hello. Awesome. If you're hearing this live in one of our services, good for you because it is freezing outside, is it not? You know, I was doing a whole bunch of shoveling this week and praying because I'm spiritual and just saying, God, please, please help me not to hate the snow nearly as much. I'm not going anywhere. Please help me to love it more. But listen, hey, how great was Ryan Weatherhead last week? Were you here? Come on, wasn't he incredible? Really feel like in, in a powerful way, God used his, his message and just his sharing in such a vulnerable and transparent way to really unlock that in many of us as well and, and really call us deeper in that. So really powerful. If you weren't here last week, it was awesome. All right, so go catch that on the podcast. Um, you'll be glad that you did. All right? All right. I'm glad you're here. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 14. It's where we're going to be this morning. John chapter 14, starting in verse 25. Jesus is talking to the disciples. He says this, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we take a second, each one of us, just collectively, and we just open our hearts to you this morning. God, we don't want to just hear a message. We want to hear directly from you. And so we ask right now that you would open up our ears, open up our hearts, open up our minds to you. We invite you to be among us this morning, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. How are your holidays? I bet, uh, I bet there are a lot of things, right? They were probably partly sweet, partly fun, maybe a little bit chaotic, Maybe for you, your family has some interesting dynamics, and so you're always a little bit nervous going into Christmas. You're never entirely sure what's going to happen, and so you approach the holidays with a bit of trepidation, and it feels like like holidays are a bit of a microcosm of, of the rest of our life. You know, they're filled with, with some laughter and some fun, some good food, people we love, but they're also often filled with like difficult people, people we have to be around, sometimes awkward moments. You know what I'm talking about. You know, things get a little bit awkward quick. Maybe you were sitting around that dinner table and then Uncle Joe went and made that snarky comment about the thing that our family doesn't talk about. And it went from being a really fun time together to the most awkward table you've been around in quite some time. And it's amazing how things can turn so quickly. How, how things have a way of just changing almost immediately and, and taking a turn. You know, I was thinking about this as I was reflecting back on 2017. And I was looking through some pictures and some videos, just thinking last, uh, through the last year and all that, you know, happened and went on. I was thinking back to a day in July 
Well, one of my good friends, Alex Tucker, and I, who's one of our campus elders in Bridgeport, uh, scheduled a trip up to Mount Washington. And our hope was that we were going to spend an entire day in the White Mountains hiking and running. And I love that stuff. So I was really, really looking forward to it. And so we planned this trip. We get a campsite and um, get a ride. And so our plan is that we're going to park our car at the end of the trail and get a ride to the front so we can spend the day in the mountains and then hit the car at the end and, and go home. So we're out to dinner the night before and we get word that our ride has fallen through. There's no Uber up there. There's no taxi. We're in the middle of the wilderness. And so we hop on the next best thing. Craigslist. Okay? Now listen, if you've interacted with Craigslist at all, you know it is usually a sea of sketchy characters. And so I was fully aware I was rolling the dice by looking for a ride on Craigslist. But desperate times call for desperate measures. And I was desperate. So I wanted a ride because I had this day planned. And so uh, Gabe... This man named Gabe emails us that night. He's willing to give us a ride. And so we're like, we're doing it. Okay, Gabe, let's do this. And so the next morning we get up, we park our car at the end of the trail, and we're just waiting by our car, waiting to get picked up. Long in the distance, there's this one-lane highway, and I see a car, this snazzy Subaru, coming towards us at light speed. And I think, "I, I really hope that's not Gabe. And Gabe keeps coming towards us and coming towards us and coming towards us. And right when I think he's going to pass us, he rips the wheel and comes to this grinding halt right in front of us. And I'm like, oh no, oh no. He rolls down the window. Alex and Mike and everything in me wanted to be like, "Uh, this is Norman and uh, that's Herbert. No, we're, we're waiting for somebody else, you know. But he rolls down the window and he's got these black wraps on and, and he looks exactly like Danny DeVito and he's got this long flowing black mullet. I, listen, if your mullet game is long and strong, I'm not hating. I'm just saying this is, this is who Gabe was, all right? And so he, he's like, Alex and Mike, and we're like, yeah, uh-huh. And so we, we get in the car, Alex jumps in the front seat, I get in the back seat. And the first thing I notice is there's a metal baseball bat in the back seat. And I think anybody who has to keep a metal baseball bat within arm's reach is probably not somebody I want to be in a car with, all right? He slams into first gear, my head snaps back, hits the armrest, and we are within 10 seconds flying down the highway. No sooner are we driving that he decides to tell us, you know, guys, he's all trying to be chatty, I just got my license back after eight years of having it suspended. And we're like, congratulations? You know, like, what, what do I say to that, you know? And he goes, yeah, truth is, I don't even have insurance on this car. And I'm like, okay, great. And then he looks at us and goes, hey, you guys want to smoke some weed together while I drive? I'm like, no, no, I just want you to drive. Like, what are you talking about right now? And so he's like, all right, that's fine. He turns his rolling stones up to 120 decibels and we start roaring down the highway. And I'm thinking to myself, that was a poor life decision getting into that vehicle. This, this was not a good decision for me. And so faintly over the rolling stones, I hear this beeping noise. And I'm like, what, what is? And I, and I look down. I'm thinking maybe it's my watch. And I realize Gabe hears it, turns it down a little bit, and it's his breathalyzer beeping in the car. And so he, he shows it to us and says, yeah, I got to breathe into this thing every so many minutes. So the car shuts off. He goes, I actually give discounts if my passengers will blow into it so I can drink my Budweiser. I'm like, I'm not doing that. You can have my $5. Please keep driving. And so he's doing it in his left hand. In his right hand, he's now adjusting the thermostat. I'm like, Gabe, 10 and 2. Get your hands on the wheel. Somebody's got to drive this car. And so in the back seat, I just start praying. God, surely this is not how you have me going out. I'm pretty sure we've got some things we want to do together for New England. 
I've got a six-week-old at home, a three-year-old daughter, a beautiful wife. God, surely this is not how my life is meant to end, right? And I reach forward, and my buddy Alex is in the front seat, and I can't see his face. He can't see mine, so I'm just squeezing his arm, and I'm just saying, listen, buddy, at least we're going out together. We're doing this. And as I'm squeezing Alex's arm, I, I look at the speed limit sign, and it says 35, and we're on a single-lane highway in the middle of the woods, and I make the mistake of saying, I wonder how fast we're going right now. And so I kind of peer over his shoulder, look over the speedometer. It says 95 miles an hour. 95 miles an hour, we are cruising down the single road highway in New Hampshire. And by the grace of God, we got there in record time. I get out of the car, kiss the pavement. He says, let your friends know if they need a ride. Tell them to call me. I'm like, I'm calling the cops. I'm not calling, you know, what are you talking about? And I can look back now that I made it safely home and laugh. But doesn't it so often feel like this is the way life treats us? That we've got these great things planned, we're going along fine, things are fun, and out of nowhere, wham! Chaos just erupts. It just hits us. It's the job that you loved that you found out they were doing a round of layoffs and suddenly you found yourself unemployed a week later. It's the relationship that you really felt was going well that ended abruptly. See, these moments of chaos and difficulty that are built into our life, they're so, they're so easy if we're not careful that they're going to they're gonna bleed into the next moment. What I mean is that if we, if we don't watch it in ourselves, there's something in us that wants to look at the next moment as a result of that one. So for me, the next time I'm getting a ride on Craigslist, I'm wondering if Gabe Round 2 is showing up, right? But you got that job after you got laid off, and you couldn't help but wonder, when am I going to get laid off again? The next person you started dating after you got broken up with, you kept them at an arm's distance because you just knew eventually it was going to end. Maybe you grew up in a home where mom and dad had a hard time paying the bills. And so you live with a fear that you are not going to have enough. See, if you're anything like me, there's this tendency in my spirit to give way to this underlying unrest. This unease that wants to, to, to just live in my spirit, to stay with me. Instead of fighting it, I've just kind of given into it and decided that that's going to be with me. I've stopped trying to go against it. I've just adopted it now as a way of life. And so we come across a passage like this in John chapter 14. And if we're honest, we read it and we say, surely if you knew what was going on in my life, you would know why that is singularly impossible for me. To not be fearful or not be afraid. This peace that Jesus is talking about surely must be an empty shell or a promise for someone else. It cannot be for me. And that's why, honestly, every time we approach the Bible, the context of a passage is really important. But it's especially so here. Because there's a tendency in our hearts to think, oh, he was talking to the disciples and just an easy moment and things weren't that difficult. And yet... What we find as Jesus is delivering this promise, this command to not be fearful, is he's talking to the disciples in probably the hardest moment of their life. See, because here in John chapter 14, Jesus is hours away from getting arrested. He's hours away from being tortured and heading to the cross. The Passover meal has already finished. Judas has already left to go betray him. And the disciples are utterly in despair. Because this Jesus who they love and who they've followed for the last three years, they know where he's about to go. They're grieving, they feel helpless, and they're just hurting. 
And it's into that situation that Jesus delivers these instructions and these promises. And that's what makes this text so incredibly powerful. Because there's a tendency in you and in me to read that statement of don't let your hearts be troubled and think that can't possibly be for me. And yet we see that Jesus is instructing them in the most difficult of times. What if I told you today that available to you in this moment is a simple, majestic, supernatural type of peace? I believe, honestly, that today has the ability to be so transformational that you could have walked in as a person carrying fear, anxiety, worry, troubles, stress. God would so transform your heart in our next 30 minutes together that you could walk out a person who is calm, who is trusting, and who is actually fearless. See, the beauty of this passage is not just the promise that Jesus has for us about his peace and about him giving it to us. He also shows us truths about that peace that if we will apply him to our lives and our hearts, give us the ability to cultivate a life where peace is the common thread woven through all of life's ups and downs, peaks and valleys, the ground underneath our feet, during life's worst storms, and if we will open our hearts to it, can literally change us before we walk out that door. And I know in my heart, as I read this text, there's something in me that just says, Jesus, I want that. I need that. And I wonder if you do too. Let's get into it together. Jesus begins by saying this. Let me reread it to you. These things I have spoken to you while I am with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So where does Jesus start? He starts by promising them that the Holy Spirit is going to come. But not just come, he's going to come and do what? He's going to remind them of all the things that Jesus has spoken to them. And Jesus has spoken some utterly incredible things to them. Jesus told them in Matthew chapter 6 that if if they will seek him first that all of their material needs will be provided for, that they will have the food they need to eat and the clothes they need for their back. He promised them that. Jesus told them that, listen, anything you sacrifice for my name, I will reward you in heaven with. That even in life's darkest and most difficult moments, you can have hope because there is joy and peace coming in eternal life. That you will never walk alone because I will always walk with you. There's promise after promise after promise that Jesus has given them. And the incredible thing about Jesus, what he reminded them earlier in the passage, is he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay? So Jesus says, I am the truth. So in a very real way, everything Jesus told them was a promise. You see that? There was nothing he told them that was just a nice saying or a recommendation or what he hopes to have happen. Everything Jesus says is a promise because he is truth. And the beauty of that, the incredible thing for you and me as we read the scriptures, is that those promises, they're ours as well. And so you walk in here this morning, you're worried about finances, you go to the same promises and the same things that the disciples remembered in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, I will take care of you, and I will provide for you. You walk in here, you're feeling alone. There's the promise that Jesus says that you are never alone. You came in here this morning, and you're in one of life's most difficult moments. You've got a sickness that you're not sure if you're going to come through the other side of. And you remember his promise that in his presence is joy forevermore. 
And if the worst and most difficult thing of life comes, you still get him on the other side of eternity. See, that's the incredible thing about the promises of Jesus. And that is the first part of his peace. It's that we develop the art of learning to think on, reflect on, say out loud, remind each other of his promises. Why? Because the first truth he wants to teach us is that his peace is established through his promises. His promises for you and for me are the ground on which we stand. They are unshakable, unmovable, and you will never be pushed off them. Promises are the unshakable ground underneath your feet in life's worst storms. Let's continue. Jesus says this in verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Have you ever noticed that when you hear people talk about peace these days, it's always in the negative way? What I mean is that they talk about two nations that are at peace. What do they mean by that? It's a lack of war. It's a lack of conflict. You talk about there's peace in the home now. What does that mean? It often means mom and dad aren't fighting right now. When the world talks about peace, it's almost always talked about in the absence of the things that bring me trouble and difficulty and anxiety and fear. And so in a very real way, the peace that the world offers is simply the lull between the next difficult moment. And that is such a radically incomplete definition of peace. And that's what Jesus is pressing us towards here. He's saying the peace that the world gives you I'm not even thinking about that. I'm giving you something completely different. Something much, much, much deeper. See, in a world that's marred with with brokenness, a world that's dominated by fear and sin, there is no real peace. There's simply a pause before life's most difficult thing. And you know it. If you've tried to live that way, always worried about what might come next, always worried about what's going to happen, there is no peace to be found in that at all. I can tell you it is very easy to become a person of anxiety and fear and worry when you're just waiting for the shoe to drop. Maybe you know what that's like. Maybe that's something you've struggled with too. It is very difficult to ever rest, always wondering what's going to happen next. And so Jesus is talking about something radically different here. Not as the world gives do I give to you, Jesus says. Okay, so what are you giving us then, Jesus? Okay. The Old Testament word that Jesus is referring to here is shalom. And shalom is one of those words, maybe you've heard it spoken of, where it's it's this kind of word that you need several definitions for. It's this word that means contentment or satisfaction or fulfillment or that all good would flow into your life. And so in the Old Testament, you know, folks would kind of treat it as a salutation and they'd say, peace be with you. What they didn't mean was, peace be with you, I hope you and your wife don't fight. No, no, no. They mean, peace be with you. All that is good be in your life. That's what I want for you. And in the New Testament, the, the writers use this word, Irene. It's, it's E-I-R-I-N-E, Irene. And what they're doing is, this is the word that they use to describe peace. And it honestly has nothing to do with circumstances. And that's what Jesus is driving at here. He's saying, my peace is radically different than the type of the peace that the world tries to give you. This word, Irene, it's so powerful. Here's what it means. A satisfied soul. Peace, as Jesus describes it here, means a satisfied 
soul, where the word, where the world talks about peace in the absence of things negative, the New Testament Bible talks about the condition of a soul fully satisfied in God. Even as I say that, doesn't that sound like such an incredible breath of fresh air? I mean, can you imagine that? Just picture with me, maybe you close your eyes for a moment and you picture what would it be like to have a soul that lived fully satisfied in God? That wasn't wrecked with anger, that wasn't wrecked with jealousy, that didn't have fear ruling it, but that lived in this this place of satisfaction in God, that I believe I will have all I need in Him, that I need not go looking to other places for identity or or my core of who I am. I am satisfied in who God is. A soul that so deeply finds its core and identity in God that circumstances don't get to ruin it. This is why the peace that Christ talks about has to start between you and God. You can't possibly get to the peace with others and to other things before you start with peace with God. If the peace that Christ offers is a soul that is fully satisfied in God, it has to begin with a soul that has received life from God. And so Jesus really knew in a very real way that in a couple hours he would be arrested. He would go to the cross where he would be hung, he would be killed, and the sins of mankind would be poured on his shoulders so that he would be killed, he would be buried in the ground, and three days later he would be risen from the dead in order that your soul could finally find its satisfaction in God in order that peace with God could finally be available as God gives you the righteousness and perfection of Christ and Christ takes your sin on the cross this is the beginning of a soul that finds its satisfaction in God and until you find that satisfaction in God you are never going to have peace with everything around you You're never going to have peace with others. You're never going to have peace that goes outside of circumstances because the peace of Christ starts between you and God the Father. But when this gets in you, this begins to radically transform every single interaction you have. And we see this so clearly in Christ. It's so powerful. Look at this. Just that night, Jesus does get arrested. Judas does betray him. And Jesus is dragged before the governor of Judea, this man named Pilate. Now, Pilate is an incredibly powerful man in the region. He actually has the ability to release or crucify Jesus. And so Pilate is used to criminals being brought before him, pleading their case on their knees, begging for mercy. This is not true. I didn't do it. Please have mercy on me. All of these things. And Jesus stands before him, silent. And the calm is stunning. Pilate is getting worked up. More and more and more. Clearly, Jesus must not understand who he is. Clearly, Jesus doesn't understand that Pilate has the ability to do this. And finally, he just goes and goes and goes and he erupts and he just says, Hey, don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I have the ability to release you or crucify you? Don't you get it, Jesus? But Jesus isn't like everyone else, right? Jesus, the circumstances aren't tormenting his soul. And we see a glimpse into the peace of Christ with his response. He says this, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Pilate, you think you're in control? You think you are the one driving the circumstances here? God has a plan for me that I know includes you bringing me to that cross. And so you know what? I trust him. 
I don't need to plead my case in front of you. My trust in the Father is so complete and secure, I don't really have anything to say to you. Do what you got to do. It's incredibly powerful. What we see is that Jesus has cultivated such a deep trust in God that peace is the natural outflowing of that trust. See, the peace of Christ, it's so incredible, right? Because we see in in the most difficult of circumstances, it is flowing as strong as ever. It's completely independent of wacky outside circumstances. It's not the absence of difficulty that the peace of Christ is. It's the, the presence of him in life's most difficult moments that marks a person of peace. It's utterly confounding to everyone around us. That's why Paul calls it a peace that passes understanding. It's a peace that doesn't make any sense. Human wisdom says, Jesus, surely the cross isn't right for you. Tell them it's a false witness. Tell them that people are lying and get out of there. This peace makes no sense. And that's the beauty of it. It's the beauty of an internal reality of a peace that is based on a God who can be trusted. Isaiah 26.3 says it this way. It says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Your circumstances don't get to take it. That sickness doesn't get to take it. The job loss doesn't get to take it. People ridiculing you for your faith doesn't get to take it. Why? Because it is based on soul satisfied in God. Because you know who you are in him. Because you know the promises he has for you. Because you know where you're going and all that he's called you to. Nothing gets to take the peace of Christ from your heart and from your spirit. That's why your coworker thinks you're absolutely nuts when that round of layoffs comes again. Because he's sweating it. He's not sure how he's going to pay his bills. He's not sure where the next mortgage payment comes from. And frankly, you aren't either. But you've got something more. You've got a heart that has cultivated a deep, lasting, profound trust in God. And that supersedes the moment. But it doesn't make sense to those around you. Hear it once more. I just want this to get down in your bones. Isaiah 26, 3, one more time. You keep him in perfect peace. Sounds right. Sounds delightful, right? Perfect peace. God, I want that. Whose mind is stayed on you. Yes, God, I want my mind fixed solely on you. I want to be thinking of you in those most difficult moments. How? Why? Because he trusts in you. And that's the second truth about the peace of Christ that he wants us to see this morning. It's that his peace is activated by my trust. His peace is activated by my trust. It keeps moving. Let's pick it back up in verse 28. Jesus continues speaking to the disciples and says this, You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, it almost sounds like Jesus is being callous in this moment. Almost sounds like he's dismissing their feelings, but you've got to catch the heart of what he's saying here. He's saying, guys, we have known this day was coming. For three years I have been telling you that a day would come where I would go to Jerusalem, and I would hang up on a cross, and I would give my life as a ransom for many. In fact... Creation has been looking forward to this day. And I know it's hard, and I know you feel helpless, but this is actually reason to celebrate. When you widen your scope and you see the big picture, you see why this is an incredibly powerful moment in history. And I wonder how many times 
Our peace has been robbed because we're so minutely looking at the moment and missing the broader story that God has been writing. There's this tendency in us to not not see the, the full picture of what God has been doing in us and through us and what he's calling us to. Instead, we're just looking at that conversation that we have to have on Monday. And it's tearing us apart. And I just wonder, maybe God wants to remind us this morning. Maybe the thing that's so quickly bringing us to this place of fear is not nearly as big as we are letting it be. And that's what he's driving at with the disciples here. He's saying, yes, it's hard. I'm not dismissing that. But you've got to see the bigger story. I remember for uh, Brittany and I, my wife, we got married about 10 years or so ago. We moved to New Haven. And we were scrambling, kind of last minute looking for a place. And um, ended up going to tour this condo. And, you know, everything in me kind of said, don't, don't go there. Um, but I got worried that we didn't have a place. We were going to get married in, in just a little while, and so I really needed us to have a roof over our heads. And so I signed a contract with a sketchy HOA that I never should have done. Frankly, I was young, I was naive, and I was stupid and independent and stubborn and a whole list of other things, and I did it. I signed a contract. We got a part of this condo HOA, and everything was fine. And four years later, um, the guy who ran this thing, comes to us and says, hey, I'm going to need your condo back. And I'm like, buzz off, dude. Like, you can't have it. He's like, well, actually, in that contract you signed, see, I can. See, what I didn't know is I was signing a contract that gave him complete power to take this thing back from us at any time and do it in really the most terrible of ways. So though my mortgage was up to date and though I was current on all my HOA fees, this guy actually had the ability to initiate foreclosure on Brittany and I foreclosure that could, in a very real sense, lead to bankruptcy. So here I am, 27 years old, the thought of going bankrupt. I'm feeling the weight of shame that I didn't listen to God because I knew in my spirit I wasn't supposed to do this. I'm feeling embarrassed. I'm feeling like I let my wife down. I'm feeling like I let God down. Like there were things God wanted to do that now my future would be impacted because I had to go bankrupt. All of these emotions are swirling. The shame was like, it was just there. You know, and maybe you felt a similar situation like this where you know you've made a bad decision and you're just stuck in it. We talked to several different lawyers. They were like, you signed it, you dummy. And I remember for months being so torn up inside about this. Just regret, just hurt, anger, sadness. And I remember one day, standing in the kitchen, this little 600-square-foot condo, and I remember one day God just kind of began to press on my heart. So what if it happens? What if the worst thing happens? What if the foreclosure goes through? What if it does drive you to bankruptcy? What if your thing that is keeping you up at night, that is making you so fearful, actually happens? So what? And I stood back and I said, okay, well, here's what. I'd go bankrupt. I'd have to start over. And, you know, we'd be starting fresh financially at 28, 29. And God was like, okay, so what? And in that moment, it was amazing how when I took a step back, 
the power of fear and anxiety was broken. Because I stood back and I said, okay, I go bankrupt, but God, I still have you. God, okay, we go bankrupt. And you know what? I still have a wife who loves me. I still have our health. God, even if the worst thing happens and I have to start over, okay, we can do that. And it was so radical. God taught me something so profound in that moment that so often the things that we let tear us apart, the things that we allow to take our peace, they're just a small part in the story. And God is not minimizing them. He's not saying they're difficult. He's saying, you've got to come out and widen your lens a little bit. It's what he's saying to the disciples. You're so upset about this. Widen your lens. This is the moment we've been looking for. All creation has been pointing towards where the Savior would give his life for mankind. God said to me, listen, okay, so what? I still have plans for your life. I still have things I want to do for you. Yes, that chapter of your story is not going to be pretty, it's not going to be fun, but it is a part of it in a larger story. And this is what Jesus is pressing us to here. He's reminding us that his peace sees beyond the moment. His peace sees beyond the moment. And in ourselves, it's nearly impossible to do that. I get that. You're in a moment right now, it's incredibly difficult to see past the moment because it's all-encompassing. It's all you can see. But when you take a step back, it allows you to see beyond the moment and remember that God has given you everything you need in Christ. All that you're wrestling with right now gets answered in Christ. That trust that he's calling you to give him gets answered in Christ because on that cross, God transacted you. He gives you the peace of Christ. So Christ goes to the cross. You get his, his resurrection life. You get the perfection of Christ. Everything that God had counted against you gets counted against Jesus. All your sin, all your junk, all your bad decisions, in that moment of trusting him for the very first time, you get his perfection. And because you stand from a place, redeemed, perfect, adopted in him, you can see past the moment. And that's the beauty of his peace. It doesn't minimize the difficulty. It doesn't minimize that what you're going through right now is not hard. It just widens your angle a little bit. Only the resurrection power of Jesus gives us the ability to do this. Left to yourself, you can't do it. Without Christ, you have every reason in the world to fear. You do. You have every reason to fear that things are going to fall apart. It's true. But with Christ, he gives you the ability to live fearless. Because you trust him. Because he has promised you everything you need. You know, I don't know if you noticed it when we read it. Jesus talks about his peace in this really powerful way. He calls it a gift. A gift that is given. But he calls it a gift, and then he follows that up by saying, now let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And so you read that, I, I read that this week and went, wait Jesus, wait, is it a gift that I just get? Or is it something that I need to do? Because if you're giving me a gift, why are you then giving me a command? It's an incredibly powerful thing to see how this works together. You and I need to learn the art of applying his peace to our hearts. Daily, 
sometimes hourly. Gosh, in, in your most darkest of times, moment by moment. It's a gift that he extends to you that you have to receive. It's like God fills up your bank account with peace, but you still got to go to the ATM and take it out. He fills your cupboards with peace, but you still got to go there and eat. It's like there's this, this fountain that he gives to us that we still have to go to and drink from. See, the saints of old knew, and they wrote about this all through the scriptures, that Christ's peace, though it be a gift, desperately needs to be pursued. David would write about this in, uh, in Psalm 34, and he says, Seek peace and pursue it. Paul would tell Timothy later, pursue peace. Peter instructs us, be diligent to be found by him in peace. And the early followers of Jesus knew from a very early point that the gift Christ gives us of his peace, of the peace he has with God, of right standing relationship with him, and therefore peace with the things around us, is a gift that needs to be received and opened. It's a gift readily available if we'll but learn how to apply it to our hearts. Just stand this morning. Just stand with me. You know, it's a very, very real possibility, and for many of us, our reality, that we could love God, we could follow Him for 30 years of our life, and still never be free from worry, still never be free from anxiety, from the things that are just weighing us down. Right now, I guarantee you walked in here this morning with some things heavy on your mind. You might be here this morning, and you're waiting to get that doctor report about that lump that they found. You're here this morning, you're a college student, you're waiting to hear back from that college that you want to get into. You're here this morning and you're wondering if when you open up your mailbox tomorrow, those divorce papers are going to finally be there. Or you're going to find that bank statement that says your account finally has nothing. But maybe it's not those big things. Maybe you walked in here just weighing the the heaviness of having yelled at your kids yesterday. Or bothered by a car that needs to be repaired. Or frozen pipes at home. Each and every single one of us walked in here with something that Christ wants to carry on your behalf. And he wants to do it by giving you his peace. And so I wonder, as we sing here in a moment, these things that we're carrying, that God has been pinpointing and highlighting in your heart since the moment I started speaking, I wonder if today we could give those things back to him. Would you take a moment and bow your heads? What I want to ask you to do is that for each and every single one of us who walked in here this morning carrying something that God says that's not for you to carry, That is something that my peace should cover, if you will but let it. Whether it's a big thing or a small thing, whether it's something that has just popped up or that you've been thinking about for 10 years straight, if you're carrying that thing this morning and you say, God, this is not for me, I'm asking for your peace, I wonder if right now you would just lift up your hand and you would just give that to him, just to say, God, this is not for me. God, I know that I've been carrying this fear about this thing for far too long and I give it to you. God, these things that I'm worried about, I give them to you right now. God, these things that that I have let linger in my heart for far too long, I give them to you right now. Church, let's believe that as we sing by faith, as we choose to give those things back to him, that God is going to replace them 
with his peace. That God wants to take those things off of your shoulders and allow the the sweetness of his peace to surround you. A peace that is based in his promises, that is activated by your trust, that allows you to see past this moment and see what's beyond. That his peace that is readily available to you right now, that is so powerful that you could walk out never the same. That your life and heart could be transformed in a moment, in this moment right now. And so church, as we sing, as we sing about the incredible nature of Christ, as we boast in who he is, we do so giving these things to him, receiving his peace, and saying, from here on out, God, we move forward fearless and trusting. Would you do it right now? Let's sing together.